Okay, so welcome everybody to the People's COVID Inquiry and the fourth session, Impact on the Population One, Disability and Social Care. I'm Adia Butt, Chair of NHS Staff Voices, Keep Our NHS Public, the campaigning organisation that has called this inquiry. Of course, we support the call for an official public inquiry, but we feel the time to learn lessons and to save lives is right now. The government states they have done all they can to keep us safe and healthy. It has made clear its priorities by spending billions of pounds on failing contracts placed with private companies. Now they celebrate the excellent vaccine rollout as their own victory. Many of us, however, in the NHS and the general public have a different view. We know this has been down to the hard work and dedication of researchers and NHS staff. Deaths in the UK from COVID-19 now exceed 150,000, according to the ONS. Tonight we ask, was the scale of this tragic loss of life avoidable? Was, uh, why has the impact on disabled people and those with social care needs been so devastating? The country deserves to know how and why. So before we begin, I'm going to start with some announcements. Uh, the event is being live streamed on Keep NHS Public's main Facebook page, uh, YouTube and Twitter. Live captioning is available if you click the closed captions icon at the bottom of the screen um, or look for the accessibility guide in the chat. Links will be posted throughout in the chat, so please do look out for them. Uh, so that will be happening during the session. So that will be including our crowdfunder, um, the registration links for the next session, uh, newsletter signups and much more. The video of the session is being recorded and will be available to watch again. Uh, there will be a five minute break halfway in which we'll show you a quick video. So I'm going to introduce our wonderful panel who we are, we are very grateful for and of course we are also very grateful for the expert and citizen, citizen witnesses who are giving testimony tonight from their personal work or community experience. Our panel chair is Michael Mansfield, QC, internationally renowned human rights lawyer. Currently involved in the Grenfell Inquiry, he has also represented the Stephen Lawrence family, Hillsborough families and many more important cases. We've also got Professor Nina Modi, who is Professor of Neonatal Medicine at Imperial College London and is the President of the UK Medical Women's Federation. We've got Dr Tallulah Oni, Urban Epidemiologist and Public Health Physician at the Medical Research Cam Council Epidemiology Unit at the University of Cambridge. Dr Jackie Davis, NHS Consultant Radiologist, Author and BMA Council uh, Member and Lorna Hackett, Barrister at Hackett and Dads LLP, who is counsel to the inquiry. So welcome to everybody. Without further ado, I'm going to hand you over to Michael Mansfield. Yes, good evening. Thank you, Ali Abbas. I <clears throat> just, I'm not going to do a long introduction tonight. This is our first uh, occasion on which we are going to be, as it were, clearly the only inquiry in town. Uh, there have been lots of quite a lot of requests, overwhelming number of requests for one to be set up. But I think we can say tonight clearly, after Boris Johnson's uh, reactions, that whilst he talked about it last July, nothing is going to happen. In fact, uh, what we can say is Nicola Sturgeon is the only politician who has recognised that you can't conjure up a public inquiry overnight. It takes a very long time if you're going to do a historical job and a very uh, important in-depth, in-detail requisitioning documents inquiry, you need much more. So 
Meanwhile, uh, thanks to this inquiry, we are attempting to, as it were, ferret out quite a bit of the truth that we can, ferret out answers to questions that are being posed, and remembering that, of course, we're in the middle of this pandemic. Everybody may be thinking we're towards the end. Well, we're not. It's going to be with us for some time. So all I want to say other than that is this, that what we try and do in a two-hour period is to condense what would happen <coughs> in, in a public inquiry led by a judge. In other words, there's counsel to the inquiry, inquiry Lorna Hackett, who, to whom I'll hand in a moment, who will be asking questions. All the witnesses have provided statements and reports, and if uh, they want to add to that at any time, they can. We also receive evidence in written form or in video form, and at the end of the day, it will be compiled into a considered and concise report which we will make available to government, who has yet to show any courtesy of even making a reply to our invitation. But it won't put us off. We're not deterred. It's typical of government. So may I hand over in this context to Lorna Hackett to call the first witness, please. Thank you, Mr Mansfield. Um, I'd like to call the first witness, who is Ellen Clifford. Uh, Ellen, I think you might be on mute. Hi, Lorna. Hi, Ellen. Um, thank you for your statement. I understand that you provided a statement on the 3rd of April, um, a statement of about, I think it's about 10 pages long. Um, and at the bottom, you've signed it and you've said, I confirm that the opinions I've expressed represent my true and complete professional opinions on the matters to which they refer. Um, is that correct? That is correct. Thank you. Uh, could you tell the panel and everybody watching um, what your occupation is, please? So I am a disability consultant. I have campaigned and worked in the disability sector for the past 23 years. I'm also author of a book um, on disability that was published last year in June 2020. Thank you. Um, I just want to start with a really basic point. Um, uh, uh, this isn't a test, but can you give a definition of what disability actually is under the law? So according to the Equality Act, it's a long-standing uh, impairment that affects your ability to function day to day. So when we use the term disabled people, we are talking about um, people with a, a whole range of different impairments and illnesses, ranging from long-term health conditions to physical, sensory impairments, uh, mental health um, issues such as, such as I live with, for example, learning difficulties, autism, etc. And I think, you know, that's quite a, a wide group of people who are actually included. Um, and you, you make a reference in your witness statement to what the social model of disability is. How does that, um, how does that compare with what the definition <laughs> by law is of disability? Um, so the social model focuses more on the external barriers which disabled people face as a result of the way society is structured and organised. 
um, and the way that disabled people experience um, socioeconomic oppression in the way that we're excluded from society. So the legal definition is focusing very much on our impairments or illnesses, our bodily conditions, whereas the disabled people's movement in the UK, we follow um, the social model, which is looking at the external factors which cause people who live with impairments and illnesses to be excluded and marginalised and treated unfairly. Understood. Now, um, obviously, you've written um, a lot about uh, disability and you are a, a campaigner. Um, can you explain just broadly the ways in which disabled people have been disproportionately impacted by COVID-19? Yes, um, I have written a lot because there are numerous ways um, and I, apologies for the length of the witness statement, but disabled people have felt in particular that our voices have not been heard within the wider um, narrative on the inquiry. So we really welcome inclusion here. I think the first thing we have to mention is the disproportionate representation of disabled people among COVID related deaths. According to the Office for National Statistics, from January until November 2020, 59.5% of COVID-related deaths were of disabled people. But we need to note that that is only a minimum estimate due to the limitations of the available data. So the real figure will be much, much higher. Um, even when accounting for age and health-related factors, disabled people have been disproportionately represented um, and there are a number of factors for that. Key among them are unequal access to healthcare, which was an existing problem before the pandemic, but we've seen that exacerbated through it. Um, so a couple of examples of that are the use of the clinical frailty score in order to ration treatment. Um, there has been one particular study which showed overzealous use of uh, limiting access to intensive care treatment in the first wave of the pandemic for people who scored highly on the clinical frailty score and there has just been a care quality commission investigation they've just published their findings into unlawful use of do not attempt cardiopulmonary resuscitation orders on disabled people's notes. Another key factor is uh, residency in care, group home and supported living um, settings. And that particularly applies to older disabled people and to those who are autistic and with learning difficulties. Um, reasons for that, again, are varied, but uh, key among them are were lack of uh, adequate PPE in the early days, the discharge of patients with COVID who'd been untested in March and April um, of 2020, and the fact that within those uh, group home settings, it can be more difficult to socially distance. You've got numbers of staff coming in and out of the setting and people with learning difficulties uh, generally have very low choice and control over their own lives within those settings. Um, the third key factor um, is uh, measures of deprivation. 
So disabled people are three times more likely to live in severe material deprivation than non-disabled people. Um, there is a historic intrinsic link between disability and poverty, poverty being both cause and consequence of disability. Um, the government failed to, continues to fail to apply the £20 uplift to universal credit to those on legacy benefits. Now, the 2.2 million, just over that, who are still on legacy benefits, three quarter of those are disabled people. Yet disabled people's incomes go up sharply in a situation of having to shield. So having to pay for your own PPE and the cost of online deliveries, etc. So um, some disabled people are simply been unable to shield. For those in the workforce, those who are um, in low paid jobs are again disproportionately disabled people and uh, frontline workers that means and also those without access to sick pay. So I would say many disabled people have simply not been able to afford to shield. Um. Matt I think that's where I'll, I'll stop on that. <laughs> no, no, that's okay. You've actually answered about five of my questions. That was really helpful. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, Matt Hancock said that there was no need for national guidance establishing disabled people's equal rights to life-sustaining treatment as non-disabled people in April 2020. Now, why was that? And do you have any comments about that? Um, to have done that would have gone against the... Uh, the treatment rationing directly against the treatment rationing guidance mm -hmm. that was in use mm -hmm. at a time when the NHS is overwhelmed then those kinds of very very difficult decisions mm -hmm. get forced onto medical professionals so I, I want to stress that we're not criticizing the medical professionals who've been made who've been put in these very difficult situations and I know that that some people will be living with that and that is going to be very very tough but this is the reality of how things work um when there are limited resources to go round. I do think that the government wanted to avoid at all costs the same kind of images that we saw from countries like Italy with people on the corridors. They wanted to present uh, the idea that you know they were in control and particularly given the underfunding in the NHS and the way that I believe it has been uh, run down uh, with a view to privatisation. I think the, the government would have been particularly conscious of that image and uh, withholding treatments and uh, not um, bringing as many people into hospitals even um, as was needed was one way of trying to control that situation. Um, about uh, hospital passports um, uh, and specifically about people doing homemade hospital passports, can you explain sort of what they are and why it became necessary for people to complete them during the pandemic? Yeah, and actually this is quite personal, so I might get a bit, bit teary in that, that I, I mean, I'm very lucky in that I don't have a physical um, underlying health condition, so I'm probably one of the only people in disabled people against cuts who hasn't had to shield for a year. So this is something my close friends and I've had to do for my mother as well. So um, the NICE did review the treatment rationing guidance after an outcry and the threat of legal action from disabled campaigners. So what they did was to add that it was also at the medical profession's discretion after you've you know, looked at and, uh, and calculated the clinical frailty score. So disabled people felt that it was important to kind of influence that discretion and sought to create documents that they could take into hospital if 
they fell ill from COVID and were admitted to hospital. Key thing there being, you know, a question mark over whether they would even be admitted um, and to kind of persuade the medical professionals there that they contribute to society and they therefore deserve life-saving treatment to counter the the narrative in society that disabled people are nothing more than a burden on the economy. Um, I now have a question from a member of the public. Anne Pridmore from Leicestershire asks, uh, why were disabled people who employ personal assistants never consulted or informed about how to support their employees? Yeah, I mean, I can't answer Anne's question. I don't know why they weren't consulted, but I definitely agree with her that they should have been. It's notable that the guidance from the Department for Health and Social Care for people who employ, for disabled people living in their own homes, who employ personal assistance coming in and out each day for essential daily living support, um, the guidance was not issued until much, much later than uh, for everyone else and for other for the rest of the social care sector and only came out after concerted campaigning by disabled people. I imagine Anne was probably one of those, but also Baroness Jane Campbell, for example. It was only through disabled people at the time that they are most frightened for their lives, having to engage in concerted campaigning, that the government even realised they exist or remembered them. And um, again, sort of going, talking about people going in, coming out of uh, work environments. Uh, another question, Alison Lister from Lincoln asks, by the time the government changed the rule for carers, many autistic people had broken down completely, ruining their lives and futures. Why were they so discriminated against? Yes, and this was, again, um, another issue um, where disabled campaigners had to really fight for the fact that an essential need for some for disabled people um, in, in some groups of disability is to have um, is to have uh, support from those who know them, who understand them, uh, understand their communication issues and uh, how they, you know, what, what we need to function on a day-to-day basis. I think it was another case of just not considering disabled people because we are still so hidden in society and we were not considered a priority. In fact, I would go so far as to say, uh, that possibly um, there are those in power who saw this as possibly a useful opportunity to get rid of some of those of us who they consider a burden. Well, um, I want to move on a little bit to uh, the the problems that disabled people had with their employers and those who specifically were classed as clinically extremely vulnerable. Um, You talk in your statement about some of the issues that people faced um, with being refused deployment, being, you know, not being able to be furloughed, not being able to work from home. Could you explain a little bit about what the what you have learned um, over the last year about disabled people having problems with their employers during this period? Um, I'm not sure I would say that we learned anything in that disabled people were were discriminated against in uh, employment and in the workplace. And that's for one of the reasons why the disability employment gap remains so, you know, persistently high. I think it was disappointing that so many employers have been found to 
devalue their employees to the extent that they are have been forcing them into workplaces and into work situations that have directly compromised the, their lives, put them at risk. So the research by scope is what you're referring to that I mentioned in my, my witness statement. Um, and that was very useful as, as a way of uh, just putting some statistics on that, really. Um, there was a government strategy of public health versus the economy that you make reference to. Can you just um, tell the panel a bit about that? Yes, I think that the, the way the government presented the situation was the pan, with the pandemic was that they were stuck with this binary choice between public health or the economy. My argument is actually that uh, they didn't need to choose between that actually putting public health first would also have benefited the economy. So, for example, if they had made the decision to lock down hard and fast at the beginning, then they might have been able to move out of lockdown um, quicker than they did. I think also um, there is perhaps a lack of awareness on their part how disabled people uh, are we're part of, of society, we exist throughout the communities, 21% of the population. Uh, we are, although, you know, I mentioned the disability employment gap, still there are many of us who are in employment. There are workers, as I said before, um, in uh, frontline positions. So it wasn't a case of being able to, um, you know, discreetly push away disabled people, you know, into their own homes um, in order to keep the, the country running. Actually, um, you need us <laughs> in order to do that. Yeah. Um, now, your co-chair on the Commission of Inquiry on the Future of Social Security, which is, as I understand it, developing proposals for the future of Social Security, what are the recommendations that you're making in respect of, uh, and I suppose, what needs to be done now to protect and improve the lives of disabled people now? We would say that we need an immediate extension of the £20 uplift um, to universal credit to legacy benefits. In the long term, what we're calling for is uh, a guaranteed decent income set at minimum income standards because we think that we need to move people out of poverty urgently so that fewer people will be impacted uh, by any, well, by the ongoing, this ongoing pandemic and any future ones. We are also calling through the Commission of Inquiry on Social Security. We are also uh, linking with uh, disabled people who are campaigning for national independent living support service we feel very strongly about that that there needs to be uh, better funding of social care that puts disabled people who use social care and social care workers um, at the forefront of uh, priorities for that service thank you um ellen i know that there are going to be some questions from the panel so i'm going to hand you back to mr mansfield who i'm sure is going to have some thank questions you. for you thank you Yes, I'm just checking that I can uh, be heard all right. Yes, that's fine. Um, I do have a question. It's kind of um, melding a number of the points you've been making. Uh, number one, uh, we're, we're, we're certainly, in my view anyway, just, just as a personal view, we're in the middle of this pandemic. We're nowhere near over. And this will be there will be conditions equivalent to this continu continuing for some time. So 
from that point of view, the importance of this inquiry is trying to answer queries that relate to the current situation. So assuming that that is a fair assumption, the next question is the tension you've mentioned between, and it shouldn't have been a binary choice between the economy and uh, health, and mental welfare and so forth. That, that shouldn't have been a choice in that way. So that's the second factor. The third factor is assuming there might be a third way which has been assumed by a large number of people. Never mind where it comes from, never mind what strain it is. Uh, this, is the, this is the question I'm getting to, because you still have a, a, quite a dichotomy between those who think that the way to deal with a pandemic is in fact, and they employ these terms, or they did originally, and now they've gone off using them, but the herd immunity approach to life, and also the fact that, you know, maybe we don't need a lockdown. Mm -hmm. We should just have a simple regulatory uh, pattern and scheme. And then what's cited every time as a glowing example, apparently, of Sweden. <laughs> so what I want to ask you is, because you've got an interesting section of your report, page 36 onwards, in which you deal with Sweden and, and perhaps dispel some of the myths. Yeah. Could, could you just develop that? Yes, um, I, I certainly can, because I have being very aware that we heard a lot about Sweden at the beginning of the pandemic last year. I think things have gone quite quiet on that front since the publication of the findings of their national inquiry. And the findings of that were that the government had handled it wrongly. And the Prime Minister has since come out and admitted that. I don't think I have come across any mainstream news coverage here that's recognised that factor or of what led to that the national scandal in Sweden. The national scandal was caused by the fact that um, by not uh, locking down, in fact, the government were even telling members of the public not to wear masks, um, they uh, put at risk disabled and particularly older disabled people within the community. By not looking down, it meant that there were a lot more cases of younger people. So, for example, school children who were catching COVID and were hospitalised and needed those hospital services. So in order to protect their, their hospital services so that they could be kept for younger people and in work, who was who they were prioritising in order to keep the economy going, they, they wanted to make sure that they weren't filled up with older and disabled people. So there were directives from the regional health authorities which told care homes not to admit anyone from their care homes who contracted COVID. They've had a similar situation in, in Sweden to here with privatisation of, of um, care services. Um, many of those homes did not actually have access to oxygen or the treatments that people with COVID need. So in order to stop the suffering of those uh, disabled and older disabled people, what was prescribed to them instead were palliative care drugs. Now, those palliative care drugs actually slow the respiratory system down. So if you already have a respiratory condition, as with COVID, then what it does is hasten your death. And so relatives were largely not informed that this was what was going on. They were told their relatives had COVID. And then a couple of days later, they would find out that they were dead. It was only um, after that first wave that people started finding out 
what had actually been going on. And uh, the thing that I think always gets underestimated by governments is how actually people care about each other. We care about our loved ones. It might not matter that that person only had perhaps six months to live under normal circumstances, but if they die prematurely having had their, their deaths hastened without their family being informed, dying alone, then people really do care. So there was an outcry, a national scandal in Sweden, which led to this and which led to the exposure of of that uh, strategy that the government employed. I hesitate to say herd immunity because scientifically you can't do herd immunity without a vaccine being available. Before Sweden chose their approach, there had never been a case of herd immunity being tried without a vaccine. So there were actually numerous petitions, letters, the scientific community in Sweden were, um, were pressuring their government, they were calling out to them at the beginning of the pandemic that this doesn't make, this just is not robustly scientifically credible. And yet what we heard over here in our news was how, you know, isn't Sweden brave? This shows we don't need lockdown. Can I just uh, ask you a quickie to follow this up? Yes. Are you aware of whether any, the influence of Swedish policy and politicians on the British politicians mm -hmm. and contact, was there any at the early stages? Um, I'm not aware at the early stages. I, I think there was communication, yes. Um, I don't have to hand the references on that, but what I am very aware of is that Anders Tegnell, who's the chief scientific advisor to Sweden, advised Boris Johnson over the summer when the prime minister avoided implementing harder lockdown measures during the summer period. Okay, thank you. I'm going to see if there are any other questions. Is there anyone else want to to ask a question of, of, of Ellen. No, I don't think so. Is there anything you want to add yourself that you haven't? Oh, sorry. Yes, there is. <laughs> do, do go ahead, Dr. Penny. Thank you. <clears throat> and thank you for that um, really important um, statement and, and, and responses. My question is, you know, fast forwarding us a little bit to the moment and looking to the future, particularly around vaccination. So can you, because we haven't spoken about that specifically in the context of access, can you share a little bit of what your experience has been in terms of that coverage and perhaps if there have been any lessons from pre, the pre-vaccination era that that may have been applied there or what would you would like to see happen because obviously we'll be vaccinating for a while to come yes um, i think this is a very difficult question in that disabled people who are so aware of, of how at risk they are and how dependent we are on services are very keen obviously that as many people are vaccinated as possible, particularly social care workers. However, there's also a tension in people such as social care workers, uh, you know, who, who obviously want to do the best for disabled people, but feeling that they've been bullied and, and harassed by employers um, and ideas are, are around coercion of people. And my, I suppose, what question this raises for me is, about 
the lack of trust that people have um, with our government, um, uh, the establishment, as you, as you might want to call it, and disabled people's experiences since 2010 are directly relevant in that, in that we have seen the impacts of austerity and welfare reform, which have been extremely brutal, deliberately targeted at the poorest and most disadvantaged. And so where, where I live, for example, here on the estate in, in South East London, there was, for example, very low levels of mask wearing. Even at the height of the pandemic, I would say not more than perhaps 40% of us were. And to me, that that it, it goes hand in hand with this idea that the social contract is broken and people have lost faith in, in what people are telling them and what the mainstream news is telling them. So it does worry me that about, I suppose, any measures that are taken that feed into that disconnect that people have, um, disenfranchisement from, from society, I'd say. That makes sense. Any other questions or are we happy? Yes. <laughs> May I just take the time to thank you very much for giving up your time and giving evidence to the inquiry. And uh, we wish you well in your work. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. May I now and back to uh, Lorna Hackett for the next witness, please. Thank you, Michael Mansfield. Um, my next witness is Professor Martin McKee. Good evening. Hello. Good evening, Professor, I can see. <laughs> Good evening. Um, Professor McKee, can you give your um, occupation to the inquiry, please? Yes, I'm a physician. I trained in internal medicine and public health, and I'm professor of European public health at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. I'm also medical director there. Thank you. Um, and you provided a witness statement dated the 5th of April 2021 with your signature, above which um, it is stated you confirm that the opinions you've ex expressed represent your true and complete professional opinions on the matters to which they refer. Is that correct? It is correct. Thank you. Um, Professor McKee, you talk um, in, in your writing about the economic crisis which will follow this outbreak, this pandemic. What are the worst consequences of previous global uh, financial crises and how do we avoid a return to them? Well, first I should preface this by saying that I started off my work, well, as a, at the London School many years ago, looking at the economic crisis that followed the collapse of the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. And from that, I did a lot of work looking at the global financial crisis in 2008. And of course, now I'm looking at COVID. The situation with COVID is that worldwide, there's been a drop, um, a contraction of the global economy by about 3.3%, which is much greater than was experienced in 2008, which was about 0.1%. So during the, the period of the uh, COVID pandemic, the economic crisis has been very much greater. However, in distinction to the global financial crisis, governments have intervened on a massive scale. So while during the financial crisis, they imposed austerity and cut back on spending, this time they have been spending very large amounts of money. And for example, in the United Kingdom and in, in many countries have effectively taken over the employment of large numbers of people in the private sector. So looking ahead, what we can anticipate is that things are likely to be quite different. 
there was a prolonged period of austerity, uh, particularly in the United Kingdom, where after the 2010 election, the government shut off the stimulus that had been supplied by the previous government under Gordon Brown. And you may recall Ed Bowles at the time using his hand to indicate the flatlining of the economy, uh, which happened as the growth was uh, uh, blocked off in contrast to the situation where there was a stimulus in the United States and it recovered, or in Greece where there was also austerity and the economy went down. The latest World Economic Outlook published by the International Monetary Fund, which came out yesterday, two days ago maybe, um, is actually very optimistic. The leading indicators in the various economic uh, forecasts that we have, uh, the ISM in the United States and the various uh, manufacturing indices in Canada, the UK, Belgium and elsewhere, is actually looking promising and the economy has been bouncing back in the third quarter of 2000 and uh, 2020 generally. So the uh, IMF is now forecasting a global growth rate of about five or 6% for 2021, falling to about 4% for 2022. So it will be quite different, but it is absolutely true that the uh, economy has been hit very hard during the pandemic. And of course, the impact has been felt differentially because those who were invested, for example, in the NASDAQ and technology shares and so on, were seeing share prices increasing by 80 to 100 percent. And uh, in the, at the same time, of course, many people who weren't small businesses and so on were losing very badly, particularly those in the informal economy. So um, in terms of the, as we know, PHE um, is going to be superseded by the National Institute for Health Protection if it hasn't already. I'm not, not very good on my dates there. Um, are you confident that the new National Institute for Health Protection will lead to improved public health? Well, it seems to have changed its name already. I think it's now the UK Health Security Agency. And uh, there are many questions about the nature of it because its uh, role has subtly shifted to promoting economic growth, the medical industrial strategy, and to supporting the government's um, uh, security agenda uh, to the extent that it is being colloquially referred to by some colleagues as MI7. Uh, and this is creating some dissension. There will be another element of health promotion which will be within the Department of Health as we understand it, but there are very many questions that are unanswered. And in a way, this is a little bit like what happened, and some of your panelists will recall this as they were involved in the discussions in the 2012 reforms of the NHS. At a time whenever, and we know from David Cameron's autobiography, uh, that he didn't fully understand what was happening at the time, um, and trusted Andrew Lansley, who also it now appears was somewhat unclear about some of the things that were happening. And uh, they were confronted with a situation that they had to put public health somewhere, but weren't quite sure where. So different bits went to a different places, and particularly with sexual health as the exemplar of fragmentation, where bits went to Public Health England, bits went to local government, and bits went to the NHS, so that you got into later the ludicrous situation that Public Health England and NHSE were litigating against each other, threatening litigation to decide who would pay for PrEP for the prophylactic treatment for HIV, uh, which is an amazing situation to be in. So I think there are very many unanswered questions about the new agencies which have yet to be answered. The particular concern about health promotion in this is that there is a concern that 
that anything inside government is unlikely to tackle the major upstream determinants of health, the political and particularly the commercial determinants of health, in, in line with the thinking that's been evolving over the past decade, that in the same way that in tackling malaria, you go for the mosquitoes, in the same way that in tackling the junk food and obesity and smoking and so on, you go for the junk food industry and the tobacco industry. And there is a concern that it will be very much driven by educational in interventions, which are largely ineffective and are in fact the ones that are favored by the tobacco industry, the food industry and others. Um, are the integrated care systems proposed in the recent white paper and the promise of an additional £8 billion going to address the major issues in the NHS given its condition prior to the pandemic, its conditions now and moving forward? We have to remember that money is only useful in that there is something to buy. And as we saw with the Nightingale hospitals, it is possible to throw a lot of money at something and create and bring together what some of the elements but not all so you had in Birmingham for example I think the sum was 65 million pounds that were spent on the Nightingale Hospital that treated no patients because there were no staff. Now the NHS has gone into the crisis with a staffing shortage uh, so therefore it is very basic economics that if you increase demand, i.e. you put a lot more money into the system and you have a limited supply, you will get price inflation. And that was, to some extent, what happened in the late 1990s with something. So there are going to be problems with making use of that money in all sorts of ways. As we've seen, the government is not very good at procurement. Uh, it has had many, many problems. I should say for full disclosure, I'm the rapporteur on a report uh, on procurement for the European Commission. And uh, many of the examples of problems do come from the United Kingdom in that. So we, we did have difficulties, whether ventilators or PP or whatever. So I think there are challenges ahead, not having the staff, particularly with a restrictive migration policy, which will not help. And uh, so it will be welcome to have the money, but whether or not we can actually do things that even to the extent of building, uh, for example, building new facilities, uh, we are likely to have a shortage of builders, uh, because, uh, again, just simply as a, as a function of the disconnect between the immigration policy and the need to build facilities. Yeah, interesting. Um in one of your one of your uh, documents, uh, forgive me, I can't remember which one. Um, the, there was an analysis on the probability of expert, uh, sorry, of excess deaths, mm. which found that the UK had the highest excess deaths out of twenty one countries for men, and the second highest mm. for women after Spain. Broadly speaking, very big question: Why was that? Well, that was the first wave, and the situation has changed. And again, in the last day or so. Uh, the John Byrne Murdoch at the Financial Times, who is one of the leading experts in pulling together all the data, has published, uh, brought together newer data. And in fact, now, because some countries that did particularly well in the first wave, particularly in Central and Eastern Europe and in South America, which was a bit behind the curve, they've now overtaken us. So now in a list of about, um, you know, basically looking worldwide in excess deaths per million, uh, we're now about 14th and we're exceeded in Europe by... Uh, countries like Bulgaria, Romania, the Czech Republic, Serbia, and so on, and obviously countries in South America. So uh, we have done, or the other ones have done worse, I think it's fair, fair to say. Why have we done worse? Well, the most obvious answer is that we locked down late. 
Um, we and many others, in fact, all of the models I've seen that we have done indicate that we probably would have saved about half of the lives lost in the first wave by locking down a week earlier. Now, the new book that's come out, which describes in some detail the book, The, the Failures, Failures of State uh, by Arbuthnot and, and his colleague, um, which do describe the events, the sequence of events in Downing Street at that time, I think help us to understand the delay in locking down the Prime Minister being absent from the Cobra, Cobra meetings, uh, the discussion about what to do, all the other things that were going on, but primarily with an infection with it is rising exponentially, time it matters. And the countries that did best were the ones that imp implemented the restrictions early. That made a big difference. But once we did do that, we still had many problems because we lagged behind other countries like Germany in our testing capacity. We could, we had allowed our stocks of personal protective equipment to uh, to diminish and to 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 run out. Uh, we'd actually uh, exported as a, a donation some of our PPE to China at the time um, when we, we needed it. And uh, so there were many problems there. But also, I think a particular problem in the first wave was that we never really emphasized the importance of isolation. We never provided adequate support for people, both financial support, but also uh, all forms of other support, because testing and tracing, which has been problematic in itself, is only worthwhile if it actually leads to people isolating and breaking the chain of transmission. There were many other problems as well. We focused on a very bizarre model of test of tracing, contact tracing, which by design was ineffective. But once you had decided to go for a model where you were contracting out, that was what you were going to get. Now, we've heard before about the claim that the UK government threw a protective ring around care homes. <laughs> Um, given that COVID-19 was disproportionately impacting mortality in English care homes, how accurate was that claim? Well, it wasn't true at all. And we have, again, with my colleague Selina Rajan and others, we've published a paper in that, which is in the papers that I, I mm -hmm. sent to you. And that was um, a survey and a documentary analysis looking at uh, asking people who were running care homes what their experience was. We were particularly surprised about this, and I should preface that by saying that I've in the past done quite a lot of work on what are called institutional amplifiers. Now, these are situations in which people are brought together and infection in close proximity where infections can multiply. And the classic examples and the ones that we had looked at were prisons in the countries of the former Soviet Union, where this applied with tuberculosis and mines, um, diamond mines and, and, and so on in sub-Saharan Africa. And in both of these, it, when people are living together in close proximity, when one or two cases come in, then they multiply out, but then they spread out into the community around them. So for example, much of the tuberculosis are not much, but you can explain to some extent tuberculosis and HIV patterns in sub-Saharan Africa by mining industry and particularly the role of migrant workers coming from, so particularly in South Africa, the neighboring countries. So it was inevitable, it seemed highly likely to us that care homes would be institutional amplifiers. And the fact that that could happen with SARS-CoV-2 was then, uh, we had a reminder of that with the Diamond Princess cruise ships, because cruise ships were other forms of institutional amplifiers, keeping, confining people together. So from that point of view, it seemed fairly logical that you, you would expect care homes to be 
to act in this way. And if that was the case, then you would not want to move large numbers of people into the care homes who were carrying the infection. And if you did, you would want to make absolutely sure that you could isolate them and protect people. And also, uh, I think one of the other things that's done, been, happened, my colleagues who are on SPY-M, uh, the government's um, advisory group on modelling, have been quite open about this, that there was not an understanding at the time of the way in which with the informal economy, which has been a major factor in the, in the course of the pandemic in the UK, preventing people from isolating, but also it meant that there were many people working in care homes who would work in multiple care homes, who would do a day here or a day there, and they were transmitting infection. So looked at from that point of view, it was fairly obvious that this would be a problem, uh, but unfortunately was not recognised as such. Thank you. Um, in your work at the European Observatory on Health Systems and Policy, you've written about the um, world having sort of tracked the progress of COVID-19 um, using data on cases and deaths. But that's obviously not the whole story, is it? We've got this developing situation with uh, long COVID or um, it's, I mean, it's been called other names too, but yeah, I'm going to call it long COVID. Long COVID. Because, um, so while sort of 25% of people um, can be ill for about a month or more, up to up to about 10% of people, is that mm. right, can still be unwell after 12 weeks. And yep. this seems to be a sort of emerging condition that's not really well understood, uh, but it can be really disabling. Um, I, I've seen uh, your, your report, which is very helpful, but what work is being done to research in order to better understand this condition and what needs to be done to support those with this really difficult and disabling condition? Yes, that's right. Well, that report was written for the European Observatory, where I am research director, and uh, for the World Health Organization. WHO is a partner in the, uh, the observatory and hosts the secretariat. We were concerned that uh, there was a need to bring together to synthesize the information. Now, some of my colleagues like Trish Greenhall and others have done a great job in doing that. But this was an attempt to take a pan-European uh, look. In fact, Trish was um, involved in, in, in our review. And uh, so a lot of work is being done in the United Kingdom and this colleagues in Leicester, Kamlish Kunti in particular, and colleagues have been leading a study which has been following people up. And of course, the team, Tim Spector and his team with the Zoe app have been following people up as well. So we're getting more of an idea. I would like to pay particular tribute to the uh, group of people who are suffering with long COVID, uh, Nizreen Alwan and others. Um, a number of doctors who are uh, affected by long COVID who have been collecting data themselves and helping us to understand it. And that is helping us to understand that this is really quite a complex condition. There are multiple mechanisms involved. In some, this is a virus which, because it, it latches onto a receptor that is widely distributed throughout the body, has a direct impact on many cells in the gastrointestinal tract, in the pancreas, in the lungs, in the cardiovascular system. It leads to a, 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 a situation of high, increased blood clotting, uh, but also a hyperinflammatory response which does damage in its own right. And then there are other mechanisms that we're less clear about. So there's a combination of symptoms that look a little bit like some of the post-viral syndromes that have been recognized in the past. But then there are clear biological findings. You can actually look using particular imaging methods to find lung scarring or damage to the heart or to the kidneys or whatever. So there's a multiplicity, which it makes it rather, it makes it very complicated. Mm. 
Now, you say in in um, in one of your works that the the world is at a crossroads. Um, so, what lessons could we learn globally from this crisis, and what needs to be done now to achieve those objectives? Uh, well, one of the other things I'm doing is um, I, I'm a commissioner on the Pan-European Commission on Health and Sustainable Development reporting to WHO, which is primarily former heads of government and uh, people from the finance sector, central banks and so on. And we're looking at exactly this question, what needs to be done going forward? Now, clearly, we need to get out of the pandemic and there are things that need to be done there. I and some of my colleagues have long argued that we should have a policy of maximum suppression, replicating what was done in Australia, New Zealand, Taiwan, uh, and to greater or lesser extent in countries in other parts of the world uh, where they've really tried to get the rates down. So that, that's the sort of immediate policy, because until we do that, we're just going to leave open the opportunity for the virus to mutate and for new variants to arise. And we are already seeing the consequences of that in Brazil. But then there is an, a longer term legacy, and that is in terms of the wider consequences. And right back in April of 2020, I and colleagues from Scotland wrote a paper in the British Medical Journal that warned about the wider consequences. Nobody wants a lockdown, nobody wants restrictions, but you have to have them to control the spread of the virus. And we were looking at the impact on education and on employment and all sorts of other things. And clearly those need to be tackled. We need to look at children who have missed out on education. We need to set up services for people with long COVID. We need to look at the impact and uh, back of an envelope calculation based on a US, on, on a, a paper from the United States, and tens of thousands of children have lost a parent in the pandemic across Europe, across North America, uh, a smaller number in the United Kingdom. So there are many things that need to be done just from the legacy of the pandemic. But then there are all the things that we need to do to prevent this happening again. And an analogy, and forgive me that some of people listening will have heard me talk about this before, we've talked about a, I and a number of colleagues from here and from the US have talked about a, a country in a pandemic being like a ship in a storm. It needs to have a captain who is on the bridge with the right chart and who knows where they're going. It needs to have a crew that is there, which is trained, which is equipped and is working together. And it needs to be on a ship that is not full of holes, not losing all the social safety nets. And we need action on all of those things. So we need to have clear plans for the next pandemic, which will be different from this pandemic. It could be an antibiotic resistant bacteria. It could be something else. We need to make sure that we have the workforce in place so that we're not struggling to protect the NHS because as in Germany, they were well aware that with four times as many intensive care beds, they didn't have to worry about that. They could focus their efforts on ramping up their testing while we were worried about protecting the NHS. And then you have to create a society in which you have many, many fewer people living precarious lives, not sure from week to week whether they will have a job and income, a roof over their head or food on their table. And unfortunately, with the informal economy and welfare cuts and so on, we've created a large number of people who are rendered especially vulnerable. And if they are vulnerable, then so is our society. Thank you, uh, Professor Martin McKee. Uh, I'm grateful for you um, answering those questions. Um, I'm going to have to leave it there so I can pass you back to the panel. Thank you. Sure. Thank you. Yes, yeah, thank, thank you, Professor. Uh, well, I'll go straight to uh, 
<coughs> Dr. Davis, please. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. That was that was fascinating. And thank you for the articles that you sent us. And to people listening, I'd really advise them to go online and have a look at them. Um, I've got I'm going to sneak in two questions, really. The first is one in one of your articles, you make reference to Naomi Klein's shock doctrine. Yeah. Um, and which I thought was really interesting. And I'm going to quote here. There's a danger that politicians often linked to powerful vested interests will use a crisis to undermine labor, health and environmental protections. So my first question is. Do you, do you see evidence of that happening already? Because it would be a double whammy if not only have they made a mess of this pandemic, but they're using it to do bad things. And the, my second question is a bit of an extension of one you've answered, you've answered already, is if you were put in charge of everything tomorrow, what, I think a lot of people just think it's too late to change what the government's done. Is there anything that could be done in terms of new strategies or changing old strategies that would make a difference at this point? Thank you. Well, I think in the with reference to the first, I was reading an article at the weekend about restaurants in Barcelona, and uh, several of the best restaurants in Barcelona have now closed their doors for the last time, and one has been replaced by a Taco Bell. And I think as we look at the high street, there one of the things we warned about at the very beginning was in exactly the same way that Naomi Klein described the way in which the fishing villages on the shores of uh, and the beaches of Sri Lanka were washed away in the tsunami, allowing the um, hotel owners to come in and buy up the land. And you push out the small and medium enterprises. We're particularly worried about the family firms that may never reopen because the larger companies will be able to recapitalize. They will be able to raise money from their investors. So I, I think this needs to be studied more carefully, and we haven't done that. We did warn about it, but I think that as we look at our high streets and we look at the reopening, we need to be very much aware. Now, some of the things that the government has done will help that. Uh, so I think, you know, all credit to them and the furlough scheme, all of the things which we recommended after the global financial crisis, active labor market programs, retraining and things like that, that that's good. Uh, although, of course, more could have been done and more has been done in some other countries. In, in relative terms in Europe, we've spent rather less than Germany or, or France or some other countries, even though Rishi Sunak is often held up as being extremely generous. So I think I have a particular worry about small and medium enterprises, not least because we know that they are the drivers of economic growth. And we know that from the experience of um, Bavaria, Northern Italy, elsewhere, lots of studies show that they are really important, whereas the large corporations that will take up those premises are the ones that find ways to, you know, like Starbucks with the, 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 the brand being licensed in another country or something like that. You can ma manage not to pay any or minimal taxes. You don't employ local workers and, and so on and so forth. So you're, you're, you don't have that fiscal multiplier effect that you get with small and medium enterprises. So I think there's a strong worry about that. What would I do tomorrow? Uh, well, it's really difficult to know uh, because we, you, you almost need to step back a bit, actually. Um, and I, I find myself in the situation a little bit like Rudolf Virchow, who was faced with the typhus epidemic, epidemic in Silesia in the 19th century. And he was asked, how do you resolve this? And of course, he was dealing with an infection that was being transmitted among the poor. And his response was, um, I would enforce democracy and I would abolish the established church that was propping up the aristocracy. And I think that whenever we're living in a dysfunctional society with uh, a lack of parliamentary scrutiny of policies that are being implemented, Actually, I would, and it may be a bit of a cop-out, but I would step back and deal with the fundamental problem, which is that we have a crisis of governance. 
And interestingly, in a paper I didn't send you, uh, we published two papers at the end of 2019. Um, one was looking at the stagnating life expectancy in the United Kingdom and how we were falling behind many industrialized countries. And we uh, talked, uh, we quoted the Yeats poem from 1919, you know, things fall apart. And we were looking at the breakdown of society in many ways, the indicators in the UK. But the other paper was on, on the governance of the Brexit process. And we talked about a crisis of governance. And we were talking about the problems of lack of parliamentary accountability, the lack of scrutiny, the erosion of judicial review, for example, that we're now seeing, and so on. So I would go back to my hero, Virchow, and say that we need to deal with the fundamental problems in society. But unfortunately, that is not going to happen uh, in the immediate future. Yes, <clears throat> do, do, do come in, uh, Nina Modi. Thank you very much, um, uh, Martin. I'd like to pick up on the fact that you 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 implied, though you didn't state clearly, that there does seem to be perhaps limited understanding or indeed recognition of the wider dimensions of public health. And I put it to you that if we had not had COVID, we would be um, talking about the rise in non-communicable diseases yeah. and what needed to be because that would that posed the major public health challenge. So, and of course, during COVID, we saw very, very clearly how each of these uh, chronic conditions um, adds damage to the other. So those, those who have suffered from non-communicable diseases uh, who have also uh, contracted COVID have done far worse than other people. There's clearly an interrelationship between them. So, so I ask you as a global public health physician, um, why is there this seeming um, lack of recognition of the of the the the, the, the early life determinants, the so social determinants, the wider determinants, the environmental determinants of public health? Um, why is then why have we not learned the lessons that have come out so clearly from COVID? And is there anywhere in the country, is there anywhere in the world that's doing this well? Can the UK learn from other examples around the world? Well, it is rather surprising, given that we have people like Michael Marmot, who have done so much work to demonstrate the, the nature of this. Uh, I think uh, you're absolutely right. And one of the things that we've been writing about for some time have been the increase in the so-called uh, uh, deaths, diseases of despair. Uh, that Angus Dayton has talked about in the United States, because if you look at the progress in life expectancy using ONS, the Office of National Statistics data, um, over the last five, 10 years, um, the UK has seen less progress in life expectancy than any other industrialized country for women and second worst for men uh, just above the United States. And of course that is highly geographically dispersed. It's not everywhere. And in particular, uh, you get those parts of the country that have been left behind. The, the, the gist about managing uh, that Theresa May referred to, people in precarious existences, but some parts, particularly uh, in the same way that you see the Rust Belt in the United States, you're seeing the coastal communities like Blackpool, for example, uh, that uh, where life expectancy has been doing really, really badly, parts of Lincolnshire and so on. And uh, so I think we would be talking about that. We would be talking about the rise in drugs-related deaths, for example, that have afflicted many of those communities. And we are seeing exactly the same problem that we are seeing in, in parts of the US. So, but you're right that COVID has shone a light 
on the problems of those areas in particular. And of course, those areas were the ones where COVID was never fully suppressed at the end of the first wave and from where it bounced back. And if you look at the map, the ONS map at the minute, those are the same parts in the north in particular. Uh, the Red Wall, in fact, I mean, there is a clear link with politics in the same way that there was in the United States. We've shown a link with uh, political, with voting intention here too. Uh, so uh, the, the, we would be talking about that. Have other countries done it better? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, we talked about Sweden, which actually is not a good example, but Finland and Norway have done very well in the pandemic. Uh, Finland, um, ha both countries have had very proactive public health systems. Denmark, um, after you know, Denmark diverged about 1967 when it adopted a more individualistic approach, but it's been doing quite well in the in the pandemic. East Asian countries have done well. Uh, Thailand, Taiwan, um, China, uh, Mongolia, obviously the uh, Asia Pacific countries have done well in the in the pandemic. But actually, in terms of health more generally, I think uh, definitely uh, the um, not just countries, but also regions within countries. Uh, that have pursued healthy public policies, but the Nordic countries would, would stand out, I think, as the exemplars. And they do in a book that Johan Mackenbach and I did many years ago, where we developed a composite score of public health policies. They were the ones that were up at the top, Norway and Finland, uh, Iceland in, in particular. So clear lessons, clear lessons for our policymakers, should they choose to avail themselves of these, would you say? Well, I think more than that, because we also know that health, uh, just like education, is the driver of economic growth. We know that healthier people are more productive. We've shown this. Other people have shown it uh, in, in high-income countries, as well as the work of the Commission on Macroeconomics and Health in low-income countries. They are more likely to participate in the labour force in terms of hours per week and a lot less likely to retire early. They're more likely, younger people, as you know, are more likely to invest in their own education if they have a prospect of living a long life. And families are more likely to invest in their businesses and so on if they think that they'll live to enjoy it. So there's an argument leaving aside the human perspective. There's an economic argument for doing it. And many would argue that, in fact, that is one of the factors why the United Kingdom has performed less well economically, as well as our low investment in education and our low skills level, which has to some extent been compensated by um, immigration of highly educated people from elsewhere. But of course, that we're, we're not sure how that will go forward in the future. Yeah, here's another question. They're coming thick and fast. Uh, yes, please, Dr. Tallulah Oni. Thanks. Thanks very much for your responses so far. I want to touch on um, a, a composite question that combines the social care aspect of things um, specifically um, and connects that to the points, the institutional points you made about the new institutions that are being created, the health security and the Office of Health Promotion. So if we talk about um, social care and particularly um, in if we look at, say, children um, or other other population groups that have been placed at risk, if you like, and kept at risk by by inequitable systems, um, maybe take that kind of proactive approach rather than just calling them at risk or vulnerable. 
I would assume that part of the, the role of that social care is, is not just caring the moment, but anticipating needs in the, in the event of a crisis like this, but also anticipating the potential fallout um, of those, for those popula population groups and what the needs would be. Well, it's, it's, I'm concerned about who would look, who would be responsible for this. So, in the context where we're moving yeah. towards an institutions where that are either health security or um, promotion, health promotion that are disconnected, how, how, what are we setting up here, and how are we actually going to ensure that uh, we we put a protective ring around not just care, but um, care homes, but also social care um, more generally? Well, I'm going to say, I'm, I told you, I'm going to answer you in the way that I do with journalists who ask me to interpret the intentions of the government um, in which a situation in which I feel like I'm one of those people around the Oracle at Delphi or interpreting the the um, quatrains or whatever they were of Nostradamus. And you're trying to apply a sort of logic or rationality to something that is intrinsically not particularly logical. And uh, so uh, I, I think it, it sort of is a challenge, and I would suggest that you invite the Secretary of State to, to help you with that one. But I would say that I think one of the problems is that nobody really seems to be in charge. Now, in England, of course, social care has been brought within the Department of Health, but uh, it seems to be uh, in a, having a, a sort of separate existence in some ways. And uh, so I think that is quite challenging. I think one of the difficulties that maybe you're touching on is that the way in which we are looking at many of these institutions, care homes, prisons, um, many other facilities, which you know we see them, uh, and this goes back to Naomi Klein's work in a way, uh, we're taking a very old fashioned view, which is that the care system is meant to care for people and it's meant to support and nourish and, and encourage and uh, give them a, a reason for living and so on. But in fact, for many people, you know, if you read the financial pages and you look at the companies that are owning many of these company, these facilities, who've actually sold them off to property companies somewhere else, and they're they're paying a maintenance charge to somebody in the Cayman Islands. I mean, this was what happened with Southern Cross um, and um, some of the ones in the past. We've, I think, missed a trick because essentially, in the modern economy that we live in prisons and care homes and immigrant detention centers and so on are a means of monetizing the storage of human beings. And uh, from that point of view, they have a different set of objectives. And for us to impose our idea that they are there to look after people and, and help them and, uh, and, so, and rehabilitate them and so on is, I think, missing the point. Um, these are essentially financial vehicles uh, which happen to have people in them. Uh, but uh, and, you, and you see that because the same companies are running the detention centres, are running the prisons, are running care homes and, and, and so on and so forth. I think that, um, if I may just interrupt, because time is running on and I think we're going to have a, a short interval in a moment. But I'm going to do something we haven't done before, uh, Professor, and that's this. Uh, I've listened very carefully to everything you said and... Uh, I want to return to the, the central point you seem to be making, which I think is extremely important, the fundamentals. In other words, we've got to be looking at governance. We've got to be looking at accountability. This is a people's inquiry. And I think people will be interested to ensure that, if you like, the power of the people gets through 
to the people in power, and eventually we will be presenting something in relation to our findings here. But how are you going to change governance if the lead of that government with a substantial majority mm. at the moment, you have a leader who attributes success to greed and capitalism? Mm -hmm. Now, I don't want you to answer that now because we might be here for another year. So, <laughs> I don't think I have an answer anyway. Um, but I think um, if you have an answer which you could put in writing to us about that, uh, I'd be very interested to know and obviously about the forces of change. And I'm sorry to cut you off at this stage. If you're bursting to answer it, uh, I'm sure we can stay behind later. So thank you very much. And we'll thank you very much the... indeed. Okay. Thank you. I want to tell you what we've been doing to protect people in care homes throughout the crisis. If we start with the data, in April, 31,203 people died in care homes, of whom 11,560 died with coronavirus. I'm grateful to the ONS for having responded to the requests to put extra resources into understanding and measuring all this. Right from the start, it's been clear that this horrible virus affects older people most. So right from the start, we've tried to throw a protective ring around our care homes. We set out our first advice in February, and as the virus grew, we strengthened it throughout. We've made sure that care homes have the resources they need to control the spread of infection. Social care is a devolved matter, of course, and this week, we've made a further £600 million available to care homes in England. This comes on top of the £3.2 we made available in March and April, and the £712 million we made available to the devolved authorities, that's £369 million extra for Scotland, £223 million extra for Wales, and £124 million for Northern Ireland. We've put extra infection control procedures in place and prioritised testing in care homes. We test any resident returning to a care home from hospital and all residents with symptoms and all social care colleagues and members of their households if they have symptoms. Together, these measures have saved lives and protected 64% of care homes, almost two thirds, from having any coronavirus cases at all. And where there are cases, we've taken extra measures to protect residents and staff with local public health officials playing such a critical role. Can I welcome, uh, I'll just make sure I'm switched on, yes. Can I welcome you back uh, to the second part of this session? And uh, because of the time, I say no more and hand to Lorna Hackett, please, to call the next witness. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Mansfield. Well, the next witness is Claire Phillips. Hello. Hello. Um, thank you. Um, Claire Phillips, could you um, explain to the panel what your occupation is currently, please? So I'm an operations manager working predominantly um, in supported living services for people with learning disabilities, um, not exclusively. Um, we also support people with autism complex health needs, mental health needs, dementia. It's really a broad a broad scope in terms of the, the needs that we currently meet. So I'm part of a senior management team that oversees 
um, a group of supported living services. Thank you. Um, and you provided a statement for this inquiry uh, dated the 4th of April, um, signed uh, C. Phillips, and you've said above uh, that you confirm that the opinions you've expressed represent your true and complete opinions on the matters to which they refer. Is that still correct? Oh, I, are you still there? The screen froze briefly. Yeah, that's correct. Thank yeah, that's correct. Um, uh, yeah, you're cutting out just, a little bit. Yes, yes, sorry, you, you cut out at this end too. Um, firstly, can you just um, give a brief description of what supported living actually is and what it entails? I appreciate it's a broad brush, but for people that, that don't necessarily yeah. um, have any familiarity with the term. Well, it's, it's really important and it's really important to this um, discussion as well because there is an assumption that um, disabled people are supported within care homes um, and, and actually in terms of how many people with learning disabilities and other disabilities are supported in the community they're not in care homes so supported living service someone has a tenancy so they could be in their own flat they could be in shared accommodation um, it's a very common model um, of how um, services are provided and how they're commissioned. I think the crucial bit is that individuals have a tenancy, so they have rights within a tenancy, and whatever support is needed will go in to that person or people within that accommodation. So as a, for instance, the organisation I work for, we're registered with the CQC, as many others are as well, um, and we are registered under domiciliary care because many people we support will need some support with their personal care. So not, not care home in the way people understand it, but unfortunately care home has become a catch-all for everyone, which is incorrect. Um, and that, that really is a fundamental issue in how supported living services have been largely forgotten about until very, very recently. Um, when the original guidance came out for us, um, around what we should be doing and I say guidance it was parts of it difficult to understand it changed frequently quite often at five o'clock on a Friday evening um, suddenly coming up with some other plan of things that we should or shouldn't be doing we then had to wade through that look at it and say how does that apply to our services you know we're not a care home they're talking about care homes we're actually providing we need to provide the same support we need to keep people safe the people we support, our staff, and we had to interpret that, make sure we then applied it and make sure all our support staff were kind of up, up to speed with that. So that has been, and it continues. Um, I'll give you an example, if I may. Um, 20 past five yesterday, uh, there was another update around PPE, our personal protective equipment. I'm sure everyone is, is familiar with that. That's been another huge issue. And the government has decided now, why at 20 past five yesterday, I do not know, um, as well as wearing FFP3 masks, so they are um, particular face masks that we have been wearing throughout the COVID pandemic when we're supporting people closer than two metres, so with personal care and other, other things. So, and they, they are fluid resistant masks, the same as they were in hospital. Um, but now apparently, people have to wear visors and those masks when they are supporting someone at less than two, two metres. Now, I don't have an issue with that. And actually we've got, we've had to, to find our own PPE. We do have visors, but it's just that 
the drip drip of bits of guidance um, without without discussion, if you like, without thought to without thought to our services. And I, I do feel that people with learning disabilities, particularly, and they will say that themselves as well, um, have been sort of neglected and forgotten in this. Um, very much what Ellen was saying at the beginning of uh, at the beginning of this session. So you, you mentioned there 20 past five yesterday um, and that you've actually got your own PP. Now, what, what just hypothetically, what would have happened if you didn't have any visors? How, what would, if well, you get that at five at 5.20, what would you have done this morning? Well, exactly. So therein lies the issue. So I guess if I was to rewind to the start of this pandemic, one of the huge issues in terms of access to PPE was that care homes, and not right in the beginning, I have to say, but that care homes were able at one point to access PPE, some basic PPE, but only if you were a care home. Mm. So if you're not a care home, where will you get your PPE from? Um, and you'll, you'll notice in my statement, we kind of had to think very quickly on our feet. We actually had donations from restaurants, from catering firms, from other from construction. Um, we spent I don't know how many thousands and thousands of pounds on PPE initially. Um, very much later on, so coming back to the issue of visors, we have been able to access PPE through the NHS portal. But again, that has come very recently. When I say very recently, earlier on this year, bearing in mind the pandemic's been going since March. So I have the job actually of going on to uh, the portal. So. I need to do the order for this week. We can do it weekly and I need to get hold of as many visors as I can. We have got a stock of visors. So that's how that works. Right. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about um, hospital passports. Um, you, you say in your statement you did quite a lot of work on hospital passports and we've heard earlier in, in this evening's session about what those are. Um, but in particular, why were they necessary for people with learning disabilities and what sort of information did you put on them? So everybody with a learning disability that we support has a hospital passport. And the idea of that is that it's an up-to-date record of all the essential information about that individual. Not reams and reams, but um, obvious things around their diagnosis, their health needs, um, specific information about how that person communicates. We support people with uh, profound and multiple learning disabilities who would not be able to advocate for themselves in a hospital environment. Um, next of kin details, etc. Um, also important things around eating and drinking, what support the person needs. So they were in place already. Um, the concern that we had is that prior to COVID, um, people with learning disabilities were still not getting the right kind of care. There's still quite a lot of misunderstanding about people with learning disabilities. People just don't have, have the knowledge, if you like, even with sending up a hospital passport and all the information about somebody's medication that might be lost or mislaid, things don't get handed over to the next people. And we appreciate it's incredibly busy. The other part of that links to um, what Ellen was saying, I believe, at the beginning around the, the use of do not attempt mm -hmm. association. Yeah. We have experienced that firsthand. I have only a couple of years ago um, where something was in place for somebody and we believed that was the best course of action at the time. 
But when we were confident enough to ask more questions, there were awful lot of failings in that person's care. And actually, they were kind of being left to die in a side room. And that was really distressing. That's someone I've known for 10 years. I've been 11 years in this role. And by asking the right questions and getting the right people involved, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to say that that person is, is, is alive and well um, with, with quality of life. Um, and so our big concern was around how people with learning disabilities would be treated um, within the COVID pandemic. And I did, um, we, we did, we included a statement that around the human rights of people with learning disabilities and that they should be assessed in the same way as anybody else. And in terms of the clinical frailty scale, that that, that should not be applied just because the person's got a learning disability and therefore outcomes will not be good. It should be looked at of somebody's health overall. Um, and there was a real fear that that could happen. So I forget how many hospital piles. We, we actually did this work with um, a local community team. So we work very closely with um community learning disability services attached to the local authorities we work in and we work in several across west and northwest london so it was a piece of work we did in conjunction with them yeah. um, we explained why we were were doing that and i think that was a really important thing to do and i have to say that we feel that that has made a difference to those individuals that had needed needed to go to hospital um covid or non-covid related i think the other the other big issue it's been really really difficult is that many people we support would normally have somebody who knows them well support worker or somebody else going with them to the hospital and that couldn't happen in, at the height of the pandemic um, at the moment it kind of varies it's still quite difficult and we're kind of making a case where we think it's really important to somebody's well-being that somebody's there uh, because we know the, the person well um, but of course that wasn't happening so that was very frightening for the people we support quite frightening for staff not necessarily knowing what was going on and getting that information so what went with the person in the ambulance was a hospital passport so it was just so, so crucial that all that information was in there so um going back slightly um in 2000 it, it was, in fact it was july last year uh, boris johnson said that we discovered too many care homes didn't really follow the procedures in the way that they could have now as a provider of social care, how did that make you feel? Um, incredibly angry. Um, it was unbelievable, really. Um, the fact that we, like many, many providers, um, and we, we work in partnership with other providers as well, were basically doing the best we could do with without adequate PPE, without guidance that made sense been basically left to get on with it um and to somehow suggest that we were not doing everything that we could around infection control that's something we do anyway the same as care homes um we had to train people very quickly to think in more clinical terms in terms of infection control around mask wearing we, we actually went over and above the guidance around the ppe that people should be wearing um we learned from the first wave that when we knew the second wave was coming, that we needed to do something more. So we actually provided enhanced PPE with things like FFP3 masks, where somebody either tested positive for COVID or it was suspected they had it. That's not in government guidance. It's very confusing, their, their, their guidance. And we've got passionate, um, committed 
staff who some of them were camped out in services at the time to make sure that shifts were covered. We had people furloughed very early on because they themselves were sort of clinically extremely vulnerable. Um, we had people, there wasn't testing early on. So if anyone had any symptoms, a slight cough, they were off sick. One of my services lost over half its staff team overnight for that reason. Everybody pulled their way. Everyone has done everything they could do and to make sure we got the training in place about how to don and doff PPE, things that staff in social care, and they're not used to working in hospital. We had to do the same things. And I think that we know that the virus swept through care homes and thousands of people died. Um, and yet Boris Johnson seeks to blame those individuals. Um, it, it's, it's distressing, it made us angry, it makes me upset now thinking about it because we are by no means out of this. Um, so I find it, and the fact anyway that, as I say, he's, he's forgotten the whole group of people in any case. So I felt like saying to him, well, where was the mention of supported living? Where's the mention of people with learning disabilities? despite the fact that people with learning disabilities are dying six times the rate of their peers in the general population. People with Down syndrome, we know, were added to clinically extremely vulnerable list and asked to shield. But that wasn't until August last year. There's too little too late. Um, and we have lost people that had Down syndrome. Somebody died very, very early on in the pandemic. We haven't had an opportunity to even be able to mourn that person properly. So it's I do feel quite emotional about that. So. We did talk about it as an organisation and we're not, as a provider, we are not obviously into talking about politics as such. However, what we did have were, were regular uh, virtual meetings with our services and managers. And that's one of the questions we asked. How did that make you feel? And you can imagine what the response was. Yeah. Um, final question from me before I pass you back to the panel. If there is indeed a third wave coming, what needs to be done to support those with learning disabilities now and in the future? Okay, so we've had to learn throughout this, this, this past year and we have learned about things that, that help and, and don't. I think the reason that many providers within the voluntary sector, and that's what we are, we're a, you know, we're a charity, our supported living homes are quite small, so the average might only be six people. We're not not great big, um, not great big homes in that sense. They're very ordinary, ordinary houses and flats, the same as you and I would would live in. And yes, there might be quite large cohorts of staff, depending on the needs of those individuals and how much support they need. Some people get twenty four hour support. But one of the things that we did, and again, this is not something we were asked to do. What we looked at and we've already done that and that's something we're reviewing is that we limited cross-working between services so we employ what we'd call care bank or sessional workers much the same as hospitals i'm sure if you know if people are sick or you've got vacancies and prior to covid those those workers could work anywhere really so we stopped that and what we did and it was a difficult piece of work as you can imagine was to make sure that it could be a worker and they're allocated to that service and that's that um, we introduced scrubs which is not something we would normally do normally people would just wear their ordinary clothes as you would imagine um, so it was clear that who those kind of staff were as well we encouraged staff to change clothes so i think there i think there's a lesson to be learned from the model of supported living that we need to get away from these huge and i think 
um, that the last speaker had had said around that they are, you know, in a sense, they run, they're run for profit, they're housing people, but they're there to make money. Um, there are many, many, and I think there's a, a perception that all of care is like that. It isn't. I've always worked for charities and I've worked in this sector for nearly 28 years, roughly, but within the voluntary sector. Um, and they've always been small scale community homes. And I think that's how we have managed that, managed infection, managed to support those people with learning disabilities. I think that if we're looking at a third wave, one thing that, that has been missing and is been incredibly difficult and it shouldn't be has been around testing and vaccination. Very difficult to get testing early on for staff. We managed to get that. That's not consistent because it depends which borough you, you, you work in. And I could talk for a long time about that. Very difficult to get testing, but also to get people with learning disabilities vaccinated. So it's like, well, we know that people, that the evidence is there that people with learning disabilities are dying <laughs> at high rates. Um, and yet we are struggling to get people vaccinated. Um, so that's been a challenge. We have met with some success. Um, there was quite an interesting piece on the news around a week or two ago now about a community team who were going out into people's homes and vaccinating them rather than asking them to come out to get vaccinated. And that has helped with that. It's been incredibly difficult. Some GPs have decided that no, that one person within that home is not vulnerable. So everyone else can have the vaccine and not them. So it's a bit of an ongoing battle. Um, we're not there yet, but the numbers are increasing. So I think people with learning disabilities have got to be vaccinated in the same way that other vulnerable groups are vaccinated. And I can just a bit of testing. Thank you, Claire. I, I'm sorry to cut you off. Um, you. We are running out of time, uh, but I'm going to hand you back to the panel and I'd like to thank you for answering my questions. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, yeah, so I've got, to, um, if I may, just quickly ask a question that will relate to evidence we're going to hear from other witnesses, at least one, in some detail. And I'm interested in uh, your view on this. This is the do not resuscitate. Uh, I, I'm asking it in a context in, in which you're dealing with learning disabilities. Another context is coronavirus itself. It can take a long time, but it can be very quick. There are many cases where somebody's fine and three days later they're dead. Mm -hmm. Now, in this circumstance, there's a pre-existing difficulty. It's not as though do not resuscitate suddenly appeared out of the woodwork. It hasn't. It's been a problem for a long time, but it's been accentuated by these extreme circumstances. And, and my interest is the protection of the rights of the patient. Mm -hmm. Now, if the patient, the patient may want to be resuscitated or may not want to be resuscitated. It could be either way. And if they don't want to be uh, resuscitated or, or they do, whichever view they're taking, how do you protect that view and ensure that the patient's view is considered and acted upon? Because if you're not going to be able to get relatives into the hospital, yeah. the patient is there comatose. So we have um, asked for and, and have had some success with virtual meetings um, to involve the sense to look at that kind of the best interest decision. I think one of the, the, the biggest issues has been where someone by virtue of their learning disability would be assessed as not having the capacity to be able to make that decision. And as you say, if somebody's desperately unwell, they may not have the capacity to be able to comment on that. Um, 
we do if someone's got known health needs then we do work with people to 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 speak about them about difficult things to do with their health with death with you know what they would what they would like to happen in that situation so we tr what, we, what we've tried to do then is is to have those best interest decisions of people that know them well the clinical viewpoint um so it's possible to do that in a virtual way we, we have held virtual meetings quite difficult to organize i don't think there's an easy answer to that i think it's i think it's having the confidence to ask the right questions and when, when it comes to the you know do not resuscitate it may well be that there's a very good clinical reason for it but we need to be confident to ask the right questions otherwise we're assuming and unfortunately we shouldn't assume we need to make sure it's purely been judged on that clinical presentation because people have had those those placed on them simply because they've got a learning disability it has happened i'd like to pursue it further but there's probably not time uh, can i uh, <laughs> the Dr. Jackie Davis in the bottom left hand corner, please. Um, thank you. That was that was very interesting. Your your witness statement was very interesting. Can I ask you, it's, it, it's not a big question, but just to have it on record, did government, anybody from government, ever come to your sector and say, what are the special needs of the people you look after and how can we help you with it? No, not, not at all. Um, well, I would say that the local authorities we work in, that varied. Some of them were actually very supportive. Um, no, we had to, as part of our contracts, we had to provide lots of information about what we were doing to keep people safe and how we were running our services, but there wasn't, there wasn't anything coming back the other way, and certainly not from government. If you look at, if you look at the, the lot of the guidance, there's no, there's no mention of, the, of, the, of that you know for that of that population of, of people that we support so no May I thank you very very thank much you. for coming and spending time with us uh, tonight and we wish you well and i'm going to hand back to lorna hackett for the last witness please thank you for having me thank you thank you mr mansfield um, the next witness is dr rachel clark Hello, good evening. Hello, hi. Um, could you uh, tell the panel what your occupation is, please? Yes, I'm a speciality doctor in palliative medicine and I work in both hospice and hospital environments. And is it right to say that you're also the author of a, a, a book called Breathtaking Inside the NHS in a Time of Pandemic? Yes, that's right. So many years ago, I was a television journalist before I became a doctor. And I've written three books about the NHS. And the most recent was all about the first wave of COVID last year. Thank you. Now, you provided a statement for this evening's session, um, uh, which was dated the 4th of April. And above your uh, signature, it says, I confirm that the opinions I've expressed represent my true and complete professional opinions on the matters to which they refer. Is that still correct? Yes, it is. Thank you. Um, you you've just mentioned that uh, you're a, a, specia a specialist doctor in, in palliative uh, medicine. What was your role at the start of the pandemic? So um, last February, when we first started to see cases in growing numbers of COVID in the UK, I was working um, on the inpatient unit of a small independent hospice in Oxfordshire called Catherine House Hospice. 
Uh, and as cases continued to grow and the hospitals locally became more and more filled with COVID cases, I asked if I could work in the hospital environment um, as much as possible because I, I wanted to be where the need was greatest. So I split my time between the wards of the hospital, seeing patients with COVID there, many of whom were dying from the, the disease, and also the inpatient unit of my hospice. Thank you. Um, you, you sort of, you've defined in your witness statement that for the purpose of the pandemic, PPE procurement um, and, and the way in which uh, PPE is, is dished out um, in a variety of settings, hospices are care homes. Uh, I found that quite surprising, but for the purpose of clinical governance, they're hospitals. Um, so what, what does that mean for your hospice at the start of the pandemic? And what did you have to do as a result? So there, if we think back to March last year, there were a huge number of headlines about problems with hospital staff accessing PPE. And we saw those images of um, nurses having to wear bin bags um, to cover themselves up because they couldn't access PPE. And this was a real problem um, up and down the country. I, I'm in close contact with hundreds of doctors and it was a, a problem in many, many places, although fortunately not in the hospitals in Oxfordshire where I work. We were very lucky in that respect. However, um, in terms of the way in which the NHS supplied PPE to different institutions, there was a kind of two-tier system. So hospitals were tier one um, and they received their own supplies of PPE from NHS England. And care homes had a completely different PPE supply chain. Um, and as I said in my witness statement, hospices in terms of PPE were counted as the same category as care homes. So we were supplied with PPE from a completely different supply chain to the one that was supplying the local hospitals. And we were all issued, um, your hospices and care homes alike, with the same initial supply of PPE, which was a very small supply indeed. It was a box containing a roll of plastic aprons, um, a, a several hundred pairs of gloves and 300 fluid resistant surgical masks which are the most basic level of masks that are used in healthcare settings so the next level up of masks is the level that was being used for example by um, staff in intensive care units where there was greater risk of infection from covid so a better quality mask the, the problem with the supply that we received was its inadequacy. So um, in my hospice, we were using around 150 masks a day. So all we were issued with was a two-day supply of masks. And at this time, I think the headlines were dominated by the problems that hospital staff were experiencing accessing PPE. But there was a much more widespread, really invisible problem. It wasn't being talked about. It certainly wasn't making news headlines of the lack of PPE in care and hospice and, in fact, other community settings such as GP practices. So in late March, 
when we had received this immensely inadequate supply of PPE, we were very worried indeed around that time um, a directive was issued uh, from NHS England saying that um, as of now, all staff who are patient facing should wear these fluid resistant surgical masks. And that plunged my medical director, um, who was responsible for the well-being of staff as well as patients in my hospice, into a real quandary. We only had a two-day supply of masks, but we were being told, and very wisely, that staff needed to be protected from potential infection with COVID by wearing those masks. At that time, all of the newspapers headlines had generated um, a, a, a public response from the government. So Matt Hancock in particular kept talking about the 24-7 PP hotline. Anybody having difficulties could call this hotline and they would all magically be resolved. But the week in which we were facing this crisis of not having the masks we need, and these were not in any sense high-tech masks, these were basic fluid-resistant paper masks, nothing more fancy than that. Um, we kept calling the allegedly 24-7 hotline, we kept emailing it, we couldn't get through, there was no answer, there was no response to emails and eventually after multiple attempts to get through, um, my medical director spoke to somebody who said no they couldn't help, they couldn't supply us with any more masks, to, to which uh, the hospice said we need you to understand the consequences of what you're saying. If we cannot get any more masks, we will have to close our inpatient hospice tomorrow. We will have to send away our inpatients who have life-threatening illnesses. Some of them are dying of illnesses such as cancer. We would literally have to send them away to our local A&E department, which itself was overwhelmed with COVID simply because you can't give us any paper masks and even having been told that the response from the hotline was we can't help you here's a number in the department of health try phoning that and of course um, my boss did call that number and there was no answer it just rang and rang so so this hotline which was being touted as um, a way of addressing all the ppe problems that people were talking about in actual fact, in reality, was a nonsense. It didn't help at all. And I remember at that point looking at my medical director and actually starting to cry because we couldn't see any way of protecting our profoundly vulnerable patients, people who deserved to be cared for with enormous dignity. We couldn't even keep them in our hospice. We were going to have to send them the next day to A&E. And the only way we managed to stay open was because I got in contact with some people I knew who, who at this stage in the pandemic were working as a, as a charity to try and source PPE. And I sent a desperate message saying, please, 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 can you help us? And at the 11th hour, they managed to supply us the next morning with surgical masks um, which they had managed to source from building contractors because we couldn't get them from the government. And I thought this was absolutely disgusting. And the worst thing was, it wasn't only our hospice that faced this. I was in personal contact with the medical directors of other hospices, one big hospice in London, for example, and others in other parts of the country. And they were facing exactly the same problems. Hospices were 
pleading on social media like Twitter for the public to donate masks. We were talking to local businesses, local veterinary practices, begging anyone we could think of for masks because we couldn't get them from the government. And it was a complete dereliction of duty. There was no actual concern or responsibility for these very, very vulnerable patients who were dying and were facing eviction from their hospice through lack of PPE. Gosh, um, moving slightly on um, to, I would say, let's say, let's go to the peak of the pandemic. Um, in your view, were palliative care services appropriately deployed during the peak? Um, and are they adequate in the UK today? I think that we, in palliative medicine, did absolutely the best we could. And there was an enormous amount of work that happened in real time, a, a, a nationwide attempt really, from the grassroots up to reconfigure palliative care services at speed in order to meet need that was unprecedented. We had never seen dying on a scale like we did first of all in the wave last March, April, May, but even more so in the winter wave we've just been through that reached its peak in January this year. Um, however, although we tried as creatively as possible to redistribute, redeploy staff to where need was greatest, the brutal truth is in Britain, palliative care services are a Cinderella service. There was much talk last year about the fact that the NHS is underfunded, we don't have enough intensive care beds or intensive care staff, and this was a very vulnerable position from which to enter a pandemic. But that's even more true with palliative care services. The public are often unaware of the fact that the vast majority of palliative care services are not funded by the government, they're not funded by the NHS. Um, they are funded by uh, charitable donations um, to independent hospices such as the one in which I work. And so um, for many, many hospices, they will only receive perhaps a third or even a quarter of their funding from the government and everything else has to be raised by local communities supporting um, their services. So we are constantly trying to provide the most humane and dignified care to patients at the end of their lives and ideally um, ensuring that patients can enact their wishes to die in the place of their choosing. But so, so often you come up against the hard, brutal fact that someone may dearly long to die at home with, with their family around them, but if the community services aren't there, if we can't get carers or palliative care nurses to go in and support people at home, then that's not a, not a reality for them. So we went into the pandemic desperately understaffed, desperately underfunded, and if anything good came from the horrors of the last year, I think it would be a recognition after a, over 150,000 deaths from or with COVID that we need to fund palliative care in a more meaningful way. The NHS is meant to be cradle to grave, but the grave bit is sorely, sorely neglected. So just on, on the basis of that point, what is, in your view, the current shortfall in UK palliative care services? Um, 
all settings are inadequate, I would argue. Um, we are um, an ever, um, we, we, we're a, an aging population. We are a population whose elder citizens in particular now live for many, many years with multiple comorbidities, heart disease, liver disease, kidney disease. Um, and that means there's a great burden of symptoms, sometimes very complicated symptoms that palliative care services can help with. Um, in hospitals, when a palliative care team is able to support a patient and their family to die well, with real attention paid to their symptoms and their dignity, then it's possible to have a very beautiful hospital death. But too often, there are too many patients dying in hospital for the very limited number of palliative care specialists. And too often, people may have deaths that take place in a very busy, overcrowded A&E department or even on a trolley in a corridor that are so fall so far short of what those final end-of-life experiences could be. Um, in a community setting, I think the need is even more stark because very, very often when you ask people um, to give an opinion about where they would like to die, the majority of people around three quarters say they'd like to die at home, but a minority of people are able to do so. And too often that's because in the community, the services, the resources just aren't there to support families. Um, I would love to see palliative care services funded such that anybody who wanted to die at home could have genuine access to carers, to nursing support, district nurses, palliative care specialists if required. But so often that's just not there and a family will end up in a crisis situation and the patient is rushed into hospital and maybe their final hours, days, weeks of life, particularly during the COVID pandemic, will be away from their families, surrounded by people in masks, very alienating, and that, that sort of cliched death people fear of being surrounded by machines and wires and um, lots of people crashing past the bed when all they really want is to be with the people they love. Mm. Uh, I'm going to take you back to that very point in a moment, but I just want to ask you very quickly about, um, we, we know from other sessions and, and uh, previous witnesses that um, people stayed away from going to seek help. Um, they were not able to get their scans when there was a potential diagnosis of cancer. They didn't go to their GPs. Um, and, and you describe in your testimony that there's, in, you have experience of people who have sadly got late diagnoses of cancer. I just wondered if you could tell the panel a bit about that. Yes, I, I think the, 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 that's absolutely correct. And I think the reasons for that are probably multifactorial. Nothing is ever as simple or black and white in medicine. But if you think back to this time last year when we had no vaccines, no treatments, a completely new disease, and everybody was racing and, and rushing in real time to try and deal with an overwhelming situation. I think some mistakes were made that were well intentioned, but actually caused harm. And one of those was the slogan, stay home, protect the NHS. So by and large, people in Britain are decent and want to do the right thing and want to support and help others. 
So many people, many patients would talk to me about the fact that they did precisely that. They stayed home. They wanted to protect the NHS. They felt as though they shouldn't burden NHS staff. And so perhaps they had a lump or a symptom and they felt as though they needed to do the right thing by not bothering anyone. And of course, that translated weeks or months down the line into very late diagnoses of, for example, cancer. The other problem was people were terrified. So very early on in the pandemic, A&E departments were eerily empty. And we used to say, where are the people with heart attacks or strokes or all the other reasons why they, they should be presenting as an emergency? Where are they? And we all feared the fact that where they were was at home, not getting the treatment they needed. Um, and there is some research that suggests that this indeed is the case. We know that the number of excess deaths during this pandemic um, is partly accounted for by COVID deaths, but it's also accounted for by deaths from other illnesses and diseases. Um, when people did present to hospital, or perhaps they called 999 and a paramedic came to their house, um, there was great desire on the part of many, many frontline health professionals to try and protect people if it was appropriate from catching COVID. So sometimes in a very well-meaning way, for example, paramedics may say, do you really want to go to hospital? You might want to prefer to stay at home. And they weren't discriminating. They weren't trying to act as a ruthless gatekeeper. They were trying to protect patients from catching a disease that could kill them. But again, sometimes this backfired. And in my testimony, I gave the example of a patient I cared for um, called Susan Price, and I'm sharing her, her name with her permission, who had a metastatic cancer, uh, breast cancer last year. And she was afraid at home she had caught COVID. She felt very unwell. She was coughing and short of breath. And the pandemics who sorry, the paramedics who came out to speak to her, um, I think un entirely unintentionally made her feel as though she was almost a second class patient by suggesting that for someone like her, hospital wasn't appropriate. And what they meant was, we don't want you to get infected from this disease by coming into hospital but the way she described it and heard it was in the following terms I felt as though someone had just opened a bin and chucked me in it so she felt as though she was a second class citizen whose life didn't matter as much as the the healthy people who might catch Covid she was being cast aside because she already had a terminal cancer and that was absolutely heartbreaking. And I heard many, many patients describe that last year and, and also this year. Yeah, that was the um, that was actually the point I was going to bring you back to. So it was very neatly brought in. But yes, she um, very poignantly, she said, I was terrified. I was losing my dignity. I started begging my family to call Dignitas and I would have taken my life right then if I could have done. And that really is truly heartbreaking. Um, uh, yeah. Absolutely. And, and, and uh, I mean, that's a very powerful expression of that sentiment, um, but it's a sentiment that I have heard repeated um, by, by many other patients who were afraid that because they had a diagnosis of terminal cancer, for instance, that meant that suddenly they were not worth saving. They, they would just be abandoned by the NHS. And of course, 
you can have a terminal diagnosis and still live for months, for years, in a sense, life as a terminal diagnosis. And part of palliative care is trying to ensure that patients who are very vulnerable and at risk potentially of being maybe neglected in a very busy hospital environment, part of our specialty is trying to support those patients in feeling as though their lives matter and they are important and it doesn't matter how much time you have left to live you're still a human being whose life matters but I think sometimes the the, the rhetoric around people with comorbidities made very vulnerable patients feel exactly the opposite as though they were just second tier citizens now whose lives were expendable uh, Dr. Rachel Clark, thank you so much for that very moving and heartbreaking testimony. I'm going to hand you back to Mr. Michael Mansfield um, as the panel may have some questions for you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, could I ask uh, this question really? I, I, I've listened with really a considerable shock in terms of what you've described. And I kind of feel I should have known what you're talking about. I'm in the generation you're talking about. So if I were to die, I'd want to die at home. But what interests me is two things. One is, in relation to what you've exposed, really, which is uh, a desperate shortage of resources and facilities, is there any response from government in relation to what you have exposed? Or is there really, you, are you fighting a brick wall? There's no response. Second question, you used to work in the media and I'm very concerned about the role of the media over the last year. And uh, I don't know whether you have any thoughts on that. Sorry, it's two questions and it's late in the night, but thank you for staying on. Important questions. Um, so um, regarding the first question, I think that um, when we appeal to the government um, for, for, for proper robust funding for, for good quality end of life care, you tend to be met with two things, rhetorical mood music that's very positive and supportive. Um, you know, every politician um, likes a photo op in a hospice, but in terms of actual meaningful contributions of resources, no, you, they're just simply not adequate. Um, I, I don't understand how this situation has been allowed to continue whereby the end of people's lives, unlike, for instance, maternity services, the start of people's lives, why should the end of life be treated as a, as a kind of non-core NHS service where it may or may not be provided depending on how much money you raise at the local bake sale or jumble sale this weekend. It should be fundamentally funded by the NHS, i.e. via the taxpayer, via the government. And the notion that we can rely on the generosity of local communities um, is, is crazy. The end of life, of course, in a civilised society should be a core part of the National Health Service, and it just isn't. And I think to some extent the government, and actually NHS England as well, know they can rely on the generosity of local communities who have been well served by their hospice giving donations and running those marathons and sort of constantly working to generate the funds to give people good end of life care but that's not sustainable and it's not right it should be a core part of NHS provision um, 
And in answer to your second question about the role of the media, I have, as a, as a former journalist and current doctor, I have watched with horror at the way in which some, not all, but some of the media coverage throughout this last year has been grossly irresponsible in stirring up, whipping up fear and distress among the public around the incredibly important issues of end-of-life care, which of course are very emotive for the public because we are terrified of ourselves or our loved ones enduring a, an end of life, a death that is more distressing than it needs to be. So to give you an example, in the very early stages of the pandemic last year, there was some incredibly lurid headlines about the fact that NHS will ration ventilators and people won't get the ventilators they need because we're, we're running out. And they were exaggerated lurid headlines. There were concerns about rationing. People were thinking, what will we do if we do not have enough ventilators? How will we choose who gets the ventilators? But the press, some of the press, ran with those stories in an incredibly lurid and terrifying way that really didn't help and I thought was quite sensationalist. Um, and then around the issue of do not resuscitate orders, which you've, you've touched on already, um, it was absolutely um, terrible that some of those orders were imposed on entire populations in a care home, for instance, or, for instance, um, do not resuscitate orders were imposed on individuals without discussing them first with the individual or their loved ones, their family. That's always wrong. It's wrong professionally and it's wrong legally um, as well, and it shouldn't have happened. However, it is also the case that you can cause unintended harm if you automatically rush people into hospital in a pandemic and do not attempt to discuss in a careful and um, gentle and well-informed way with families and patients what their wishes might be. This is a really difficult, nuanced conversation. And the one thing that doesn't help is sensationalist media headlines that kind of whip up a frenzy of fear and distress among the public because that's the way you get clicks on your website or sell newspapers. Thank you. I'm just going to quickly see if there are any other questions before I hand back. Yes, there is. Right. Thank you very much, Rachel. You've given us some incredibly powerful and moving testimony. And, and of course, anyone who's read your books knows that you have a very reflective approach to, to medicine. So I would like to ask you, a, a, forgive me, it is late, but a very difficult question, but I'm interested in your thoughts. Why is it, do you think, that in what purports to be a civilised society, palliative care services, end-of-life services, are relegated to the Lady Bountiful approach to medicine of a bygone era? I think, um, again, that's there, there are different strands to the way I'd answer that question. It's, it, it's not a simple answer. Mm -hmm. uh, but part of that, I think, is the extent to which death and dying remain um, a, a, a taboo subject in, in modern Britain, as with many other um, uh, modern um, developed countries. So 
we are we find it very difficult many of us to confront our mortality to talk openly about death and dying uh doctors themselves often find that very difficult um when you go to medical school the the entire focus is about saving life prolonging life what do you do to a patient to fix them and actually patients as human beings i would argue are very often relegated to the margins of a medical school education but patients who are dying most definitely are at the fringes. Um, I was never taught about how people die or how vital it is to uh, try to put yourself in the shoes of a dying patient and think about their needs from their perspective, not your perspective as a young, healthy person. Wasn't ever taught to me. Um, so that's part of it. But I also think that um, maybe perhaps particularly in an age of social media, resources and society's focus more broadly tend to follow the loudest voices uh, so so for example if you are mounting a vigorous campaign for your particular disease and it happens to be Lyme disease and you can get some a star celebrities on board like Justin Bieber then suddenly there's a huge focus on Lyme disease well, people who are quietly dying and approaching the end of their life in their own homes often are tend to be tired, exhausted. They're focusing on cherishing the people they love in the time they have left. And they maybe don't have the energy or impetus to be loud and stand up and say, hear me, listen to my voice. We need the resources. We need it now. People who are approaching the end of their life, I would argue, are a particularly vulnerable group of patients. They're busy dying and trying to live while they die. So who is advocating on their behalf? And if you are going to advocate on behalf of a group in society, maybe the sexy, glamorous groups are not people who are often old and struggling with the impact of a disease like cancer on their life um, there's nothing sexy or glamorous about that group of people and I would argue people with terminal illnesses they need their advocates because sadly in modern Britain the loud voices are the ones who tend to accrue the resources and there aren't enough resources in the NHS and care pot so they go to the loudest voices well, may I thank you very much. We're going to hope that our voice can be heard and loud at the end of our sessions. Uh, there are a few more to come. Can I then hand back to Alia Butt for the end of the session and thank everyone who's watched. Thanks so much to everyone who's contributed tonight and tuned in. It really has been an incredibly rich and informative session and it's clear that there's so much to be learned. So please don't forget to share the live stream and don't forget to register for the next session, which is in two weeks time on the 21st of April. Good night.